0: Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we will be discussing an article that Dr. Mary Drnowski wrote titled Do Your Herd and Your Bank Account a Favor. Test Your Hay. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Dronowski.
1: Happy to be here, Aaron.
0: Well, this is the time of year when frequently we start to see people feeding some harvested feed, and hay is one of the main things that they would feed in the fall and winter and early spring in Nebraska. As I think about their feed, I think it's really important to understand what is actually the quality of what they're feeding and understanding with their performance targets for the cattle, what they're wanting to get done, how does what they have on hand actually match with that, and do the feedstuffs they have going to accomplish the goals they have. Sure with our listeners some more details on why testing hay is so important as we think about feeding cattle through the winter.
1: Well, you know, I, I often get a question that goes something like, well, I have this hay and this hay, and can you help me make a ration? And unfortunately, all hay is not created equal, even if it's the same species, and even from the same farm. Growing conditions vary, and it can make a huge impact on the feed value of hay, and I think a lot of people underestimate how much difference it can make. So I kind of ran through some examples, uh, one of which is if you think about a grass hay, uh, let's call it meadow hay, whatever you would like to use in terms of a term, the quality can vary from essentially meeting a cow's needs uh, to having her lose weight while she's eating it. And so if you just tell me I have X hay, I have no clue whether you need to provide a supplement or not, which means that uh, in the end, you either underfeed that animal or you supplement them when they don't need it. And I will tell you that, honestly, in in the extension world, if we don't know, we're probably going to err on the side of caution, right? So you may be spending money you don't need to. That's the the comment about do your bank account a favor. On the flip side, do your herd a favor is if you don't know, you may be underfeeding them and that may have some long-term consequences, either with animals losing condition or maybe you just don't have as healthy of calves and you see a little increase in uh, disease or a little reduction in
0: growth rates. Well, I think what you've highlighted is really something I've seen personally here, even this fall, a couple different situations where I had some alfalfa hay come in from a hay test standpoint, that was 22% crude protein and had some come in the other day that was only 12. And so if you had just took a average of 16 or 17, thinking about what alfalfa might be, you'd have way missed both of those feed resources. And so testing your hay, knowing what you have, really puts you in a position to think about strategically utilizing the resource. And if you do need something else, what best complements that? Or, you know, thinking about strategically, when might you feed hay? Uh, Obviously right after calving, a cow's nutrient requirements are very high. She's moving into peak lactation. So high quality hay at that time, can really make a difference in terms of her meeting her requirements for not only her body itself, but producing milk. And, you know, thinking about how do we match cows needs with what we have is also another economical point that I think people don't want to miss.
1: Yeah. Aaron, I think you, you made a a huge point there and that is you can, if you test your various lots of hay, which first we needed to define what a lot is, right? But a lot is a single cutting, From a single field, from a single, I'll call it variety, but you know, if it's a a single group of species that you have in that field, that's the lot, right? If you take another cutting at another time, that's a different lot. But if you sample each lot separately, you may find that one hay, one cutting, is much better than another, and you can be strategic about when you use that versus the other cutting. And so, It can have huge impacts on your supplementation needs and on how your cattle perform.
0: I think the other thing that is important to realize is just because you tested the hay from this field last year or the year before, doesn't mean that that hay test is going to be reflective of what happened this year. We can see huge amounts of variation from a location based on weather conditions, when it was cut, how mature it was, conditions when it was put up. Those things all impact quality. And so just saying, well, I tested it once before, that's probably what it is now, is probably not a very good way to estimate what you've got in terms of quality there.
1: It's no better than the book value, and that's what we often use, that book value. Um, Last year's hay tells you nothing about this year's hay. So I completely agree with you. Um, We're in the dark unless we test.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the process we go through to get a good hay sample. How do we get a representative sample? And then what do we think about in terms of getting that submitted and what do we look for in terms of analysis?
1: Yeah. So I I think the the first point to make is that uh, how you get that sample is the biggest source of potential error, right? Um, the, The hay analysis you get back from the lab is only as good as the sample you took. So how do we get a representative sample, a sample that really tells you what that lot looks like and the the first point to make is uh that taking a grab sample from a bale or a couple bales it pretty much tells you nothing i mean if you think about a field if you just look at any field and you say is this square foot the same as that square foot i bet you can you can think through a hay field and think about how variable you see growth being and how variable Um, thus the quality will be. Well, when you take grab samples, you're simply representing about a square foot in the field. So what we need to do is use a hay probe. Um, They're not super expensive. You can get some for a couple hundred dollars or you can borrow one of extensions, but using a hay probe allows you to be able to get a representative sample because you're taking small pieces from multiple places in that bale and you want to sample multiple bales. We typically suggest at least 20 bales in a lot. That way you're actually getting a good representation of what that lot looks like. Yes, there will be variability across bales, but hopefully you've got a good idea of now what's there.
0: Well, I think that's really important. If you don't get a good representative sample in terms of what you've got, uh, whatever you send in for analysis is going to be not representative either. So think about a lot of, hey, let's say I've got a hundred bales out there. How would I think about going through and getting a representative sample?
1: If you have a hundred bales and they're from the same field, honestly, a lot of times you, you don't really know where in the field each bale came from, and that's probably fine. The big thing you don't wanna do is be selective. You don't wanna go and say this bale looks good or this bale looks bad. You wanna randomly sample uh, the bales in that lot. And so we say a minimum of 20. Of course, more is always better, but time is money. So sometimes, you know, you're gonna, depending on how you're sampling, it can take a little bit of effort. So you don't wanna go overboard. So that's why I, I like that shooting for 20 and I like just going randomly through what I would say your hay barn or your haystack, and taking samples from that lot. If you have multiple lots, separate them and get them analyzed separately because you can then have more flexibility in being able to use it appropriately as well as actually know what you're feeding.
0: So let's talk about we've got 20 bales we've probed. That can be a pretty good amount of hay in a five gallon bucket. Obviously, we're not probably going to send in that whole sample to be analyzed. How do we divide that? sample up in a way that keeps it representative of the samples that we took in order what we're going to submit in our sample bag to have analyzed.
1: Well it does depend a little bit on the type of uh, probe you're using. Um, There are some probes that are bigger barreled and so yeah if I took 20 samples from say something like using the Penn State Probe, it's a very big probe, you're now going to need to subsample as you alluded to. And a real easy way to subsample is uh, what we talk about four corners method But essentially, you could take a newspaper, lay it out flat, dump your sample on it, and then you go around in clockwise fashion and just roll from the corner, roll that sample up over onto itself. And the idea is that then you're mixing the larger particles with the smaller particles, and then you would just take a quarter or a half of what is now in the pile in the center of your newspaper. That's probably the best way. And I know on, on air here, it's really hard to, to visualize. Uh, if you just Google hay sampling and UNL, uh, Rick Rasby has a really nice uh, YouTube video that shows the subsampling process. It also shows um, taking core samples and those type of things. So questions about that, I would uh, encourage you to go take a look at that. It's, it's not very complex, very simple to do, but it's really important to get a good sample. The challenge is even with cores, you have bigger pieces like the stems and you have smaller pieces that are mainly going to be leaf and even leaf that gets kind of broken up as you're sampling. And you want to have the right proportions in your sample. Otherwise, you'll over- or underestimate the value based off of what you selected for. And what tends to happen with subsampling, if you just dump it all into a five-gallon bucket, take a grab sample, you'll actually sample more stem than you will that fine powdery stuff, which tends to be more leaf.
0: Now that we've got a good representative sample and we're going to send it into the lab to have it analyzed, what should we be looking for in an analysis? What should we be submitting in terms of, this is the information we want to get back?
1: Well, I, I think everybody, as, as they think about it, uh, most people are most interested in protein and energy. The challenge, protein's fairly easy. The challenge comes with energy and how we estimate energy. So there's kind of two different, um, well, there's actually three but there's some different ways uh, your forage can be analyzed in the lab to determine the energy content. And the, the lowest cost would be what we call NIR. And essentially what NIR does is that they have a machine in the lab that they can actually, essentially just put light through your sample and they have it calibrated to know based off of what comes back what the nutrient content of that sample is. And that works really well in that it's calibrated to samples that they have run what we call wet chemistry on and they have known values and so they know how it reacts and, and thus, um, you, it's a very cheap way because it's not labor intensive, it doesn't have a lot of chemicals, so it's fairly low cost to do. So that works great if it's a typical stuff that that lab gets that has developed an NIR equation for that feed stuff. So I have no problem with NIR if it is uh, very common feeds, like say brome grass hay or even meadow hay. But when you get into some of the other feeds, uh, what happens, let's say uh, sorghum sedan for instance, uh, they may use sorghum sedan hay and, and you run NIR on it. And what they do is they use the equation for bromegrass hay because they don't have one for the sorghum hay. And what happens is that may not be very accurate in terms of how it relates to the bromegrass hay, if that makes sense. So my first thing I would say is if you go... And you're going to get it analyzed, and it's not something that you've analyzed before, and you're not sure if it's common and if they have an equation for it, just call the lab and ask them. Uh, they're more than happy to give you information in terms of telling you what will get you the best analysis back that you can possibly get. And uh, frankly, you know, they're not going to steer you towards wet chemistry, which is the next option. Uh, wet chemistry, they essentially are going to run that feed stuff through the various chemicals to evaluate, in this case, ADF is a typical way we get the energy content. They're gonna essentially see the fiber components in that feed stuff. They're not gonna steer you towards wet chemistry if they have a good NIR equation. So wet chemistry costs a little bit more, um, but it's also more labor intensive. And if you ask and they say I we have an equation for that, we feel comfortable doing NIR, great. Go for it. If on the other hand, they say, "Uh, we think we don't have it, then doing wet chemistry is probably the next best. Now here's the challenge. If it's a really odd feed, it's very different. And that includes corn residue. So um, you'll see stuff where people talk about analyzing corn residue. Corn residue is a challenge in that the ADF content, which is how we measure uh, the energy value. ADF increases, we say the energy value decreases. Typically, that's how it works in forages. <laughs> Unfortunately, the most digestible component of corn residue is husk, and it also has one of the higher ADF contents. So bottom line, getting an analysis of corn residue through wet chemistry or NIR to determine the energy value is doesn't work. Uh, so instead, if you really wanted to know the energy value of corn residue, you would have to get them to do a digestion in the lab. They can do that, Um, it's fairly expensive. Uh, So just bottom line, you're likely gonna use wet chemistry or NIR and the way you choose between those is whether that lab has a calibrated equation. So I just told you a lot of things that um, you probably are sitting there going, what did she just say? Call the lab and ask them. That's my answer. Uh, NIR works great for traditional feeds. Uh, However, there are some feeds where it's unreliable because they don't have enough feedstuffs in their feed library to actually make a good equation.
0: So we've sent in our sample, we get an analysis back. What do we do with that information now? Help me understand we've got it as received, we've got it on a dry matter basis, we've got this TDN, we've got protein, maybe heat damage proteins, there were some minerals there. What are the things we need to pay attention to?
1: So the big one, the first one you said is, I've got as-received and I've got a dry matter basis. The dry matter basis is the way to look at the feed. In fact, I would just ignore the as-received. The reason why you need to look at it on a dry matter basis is that if then you go and look at any table where we have requirements for cattle, or really any species, it's on a dry matter basis. So it puts everything on the same plane, and thus you can compare them directly. Now, the other thing is that cattle, the dry matter is actually where all the nutrients are. How much ever moisture you have in that feed, it's, it's moisture, doesn't have nutrients, But cattle will eat more if it has more moisture in it because they eat to a dry matter amount. right? They eat to fill, for instance, in a high forage diet, which is based off dry matter. It's not based off of moisture. So looking at it on a dry matter basis is the most important thing that you can do. Now, then I've got a whole laundry list of analysis I might get back, especially if I have NIR done because as you mentioned on NIR um, you'll get back you can get protein value and you mentioned protein and then you mentioned um, heat damage protein so this year is one of those years where getting uh, heat damage and protein analysis might be useful essentially it will tell you the amount of protein that is bound to fiber that's going to be unavailable If you put up hay that was wet, uh, during that process of the bacteria that are still going and working on that hay while it's in the bale and heating it up, it'll actually cause a reaction where it'll bind up some of the protein. So it'll be there. And if I just do a traditional protein analysis, it'll come back as let's say it's 9% crude protein. But then if I see my hay is a little bit caramelized, it's, it smells a little sweet, it's a little brown, then going and making sure that I'm gonna get a heat damage protein analysis, it may be called A-D-I-N, because that's it's essentially it's fiber and protein that are nitrogen and fiber bound together. Getting that analysis back will tell you how much protein is actually available to the animal. Whatever protein is bound to fiber is essentially indigestible at that point and so it's like it's not there at all. You only need that if you think you had some heating. So if you do have some caramelization, getting that done makes sense. Otherwise, traditional protein analysis is great. Now, next thing to look at, of course, you'll get a bunch of numbers for energy. TDN is a is one way it'll come back. And it may actually, depending on where you go, you may get one that says TDN, and it'll say, behind it ADF, and then you might get a TDN, and it something like summative. And that's just really how they came up with the TDN value. If I had both, and I was gonna pick one, I'd use the summative equation. One, because um, it's based off of looking at multiple nutrients that are in the feed and putting them together to say this is how much is digestible, whereas the ADF one is just looking at how much essentially cellulose and lignin is in that forage. And so it's a, maybe I'll call it a cruder estimate. But TDN works fine in a cow diet or even in a growing calf diet. Going and looking at NEM, or N-E-G, that's probably not necessary. All those are based off of TDN anyways. Then we just look at calcium and phosphorus, right? And making sure that we have enough, particularly phosphorus, to meet our cow's needs. Sometimes if uh, hay is particularly mature, you may get into a place where you don't have enough phosphorus even for a gestating cow and especially if we're getting into early lactation period where we may need to supplement a little bit of phosphorus Um, so going ahead and looking at those values is very useful
0: so you mentioned up front we want to pay attention to the dry matter because that's really what we're thinking about in terms of the animals requirements but now as we think about actually feeding this feed and we're thinking about maybe weighing it out this is where the percent moisture in terms of the sample may help us think about the actual physical amount we need to deliver. Help us think that through as we convert from the dry matter to now as an as-fed and the amount of feed we need to deliver to match the requirement of the animal with how much we feed to the animal.
1: That's a good point and actually this year is one of those where it becomes a little bit uh, more important because I've seen some fairly wet haze. But as we think about feeding, we're going to say the cow's requirements on a dry matter basis, and then we're going to figure out are we meeting it, are we not, how much supplement do we need to give, but you're actually feeding it, right, on a wet basis or as fed basis. And so what that means is that if I was to look at a feed stuff and it said, let's just say it said it was 80 percent dry matter or 20% moisture, which I've seen some some haze this year that are like that, that means 20% of that bale is just water, right? And so we do need to think through how does that compare to another hay that let's say is uh, 87% dry matter, right? Or 13% moisture. I actually need would need if they had the same Nutrient content on a dry matter basis, I would still need more of that feed that was 20% moisture, if that makes sense. So, where it's really helpful uh, to have an analysis is also before you buy. This year, I actually saw some that were in the upper 70s. Um, And so, you're going to have to feed more pounds of hay if it's wetter than you would if it was drier uh, to get the same amount of nutrients into that animal.
0: Well, we've covered a lot in our conversation today. Anything else you'd like to highlight as we point towards wrapping this up?
1: Well, I did want to mention I know some people are very familiar with hay probes and others probably aren't as familiar and um, there's a lot of hay probes on the market and all of them have pluses and minuses but if you're if you're thinking about investing in a hay probe, it's a very small investment and it's a in my opinion it can be a very high return your first year. You can often pay for a hay probe. Um, But you have to decide how do I pick one. And there's some things that uh, I look for in a hay probe. The first one is I do like the ones that have canisters, uh, mainly because I don't have to dump out that hay probe in between bales, which means it's just less time consuming. Um, In the end, I have everything in my canister and I can just dump that into a bag. I also do like the little bit smaller. Um, sizes for the actual probe itself. So something like a a 3-8 to a 5-8, no bigger diameter than that, um, because then I don't have to try to subsample if I'm taking 20 cores. The other thing that I think is extremely important is that the probe needs to be sharp. So when you buy it, it'll be sharp, whether it has serrations or whether it's uh, smooth and just sharpened. But what happens over time, right, is it gets dull. And as it gets dull, what will happen is you'll start pushing material aside. And in particular, you'll push the tougher stuff aside, which tends to be more of the stems. So you've got to make sure it stays sharp. I find the serrated blades a little bit more problematic in that you've got to replace them. Uh, They're really hard to sharpen. Um, Whereas the, the smooth ones, at least I can sharpen them on the ranch. And so I, it seems to me like more often than not people will keep those, um, smooth ones sharper. So if I had to pick, uh, that would be my suggestion, pick one that is actually, uh, smooth that you can sharpen at home.
0: Well, I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Janowski. Thanks for joining me.
1: I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you today.
0: For more information on the article that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I'd encourage you to visit the beef.unl.edu website. Again, the title of this article is Do Your Herd and Your Bank Account a Favor, Test Your Hay.